Well, we continue to venture through this book of Habakkuk. I'm giving you early warning that we're going to be reading from it again so you can try to figure out where it is. Again, near the end of the Old Testament um, in the Minor Prophets there. Uh, again, feel free to use your table of contents if you um, wish. Uh, but, but as I jump in this morning, we just have to admit that it's, a, it's an unusual feeling morning, isn't it? What a week. How'd you do this week? How'd that hit you? The news seemed endless that we had to process different decisions that were made or events that were going on. Jacob Blake, Breonna Taylor, riots in the Capitol, Twitter, Parler, impeachment, more COVID cases than ever. It was a rough week. One pastor once said that there's a difference between advice and news. Advice is something that you can usually ignore, right? Uh, somebody gives you advice, you'd be like, great, thanks, I'll see you next week, and you can just kind of move past it. But, but news is something that we always respond to. We always respond to it. Now, maybe it's an emotional response. I know I had quite a few of those this week. For some of us, we respond in conversations with one another. For some of us, we run to social media and we kind of yell into the air, right? Some demonstrate. Oftentimes in our culture, when news hits, we're, we're usually left with two options, right? We either fight or we fizzle. We fight. We grab our pitchforks and our torches and we go to battle. We just throw our hands up and we give up. Last week, we started into this book of Habakkuk. It was a Q&A session between this prophet and God himself where he is responding to the news of his day. In that moment, he's looking around at God's people, saying, God, look at the corruption. Why do you sit idly by and just watch this take place? He laments. He's trying to square the news of what he sees with the character of the God he knows. What God reminds him of in the moment is that God is at work in history, even while history doesn't make sense. Now, here was his answer to Habakkuk. He said, no, no, I'm paying attention. I'm doing stuff that you wouldn't even imagine. In fact, I am raising up this vicious, horrible nation to come and judge my people. Habakkuk, at this point, his mind is probably exploding. He's like, whoa, 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 whoa. God, we have gone from what's wrong with this picture to what is still wrong with this picture. Your answers have not clarified anything for me. How does he read the news? How does he read the news? You see, I think over the course of the history of God's people, we're not faced with just these two options of fight or fizzle. But, but, But really, the one category that God gives us over and over again is that of faith. It's that of faith. I think what Habakkuk, what God through Habakkuk is going to hold before us today is that As those who follow the one true God, we are called to read the news by faith in the one who is over history. Well, what does that look like? Well, let's jump in. This is the second series of questions Habakkuk has for God and his, God's response to Habakkuk. And so if you have your Bibles again, Habakkuk chapter 1, we're going to read starting off verses 12 to 17. Here's what Habakkuk asks. He says, Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O Rock, 
have established them for reproof. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you look idly at traitors and remain silent when the wicked are swallowed up? Or when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings, he brings all of them up with a hook and he drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet, so he rejoices and is glad. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet, for by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? It's God's word. Please join me in prayer as we get going. Father, This just feels like a dicey morning. My heart is raw. Our hearts are probably raw. And maybe it's the news that we've watched. Maybe it's the news in our lives. But I'm convinced more than ever that we need to hear from you. We need your Holy Spirit to speak, to open our hearts to who you are. And Lord, this passage doesn't offer us easy answers. But it does call us to trust you. And so would you call our hearts to do that this morning? Lord, would you protect my words from being hasty or insensitive or from coming from a sense of my own self-righteousness or pride? Lord, it is ever at the surface of my heart. And Lord, would you change us as a people as we sit underneath your word? We love you. Thanks for this time. In your name, amen. Well, friends, we see... God, through His Word this morning, calling us to read the news by faith. And by faith, what we see is uh, the process of faith, waiting in faith, and receiving in faith. So that's the outline we're going to look at today. So first, let's look at how Habakkuk processes in faith. And you'll see two things here uh, in verses 12 to 17. We'll see him remembering intention. He's remembering intention. Now, verse 12 all right, so this is like, have you ever had those pieces of bread that are like really dense, have seeds and all those things in it? They usually don't taste good unless you toast them and slather them with butter, like you can hardly swallow them, uh, and, but you can last for like two weeks off of one. It's like Lembus bread and Lord of the Rings. Um, that's what verse 12 is. If we slow down and just sit and, and pay attention to what Habakkuk is saying at the opening of this question to God, it is dense. What he's doing is he is first off, starting by remembering who God is. He says, you're eternal. God, are you not from everlasting? He calls him uh, the self-existent one, where it says, O Lord. That, uh, whenever you see Lord in all caps, that's the Hebrew term Yahweh. You go back to the beginning of Exodus. And what God is saying by uh, introducing us to his proper name is he's saying, I am self-existent. No one created me. It says in verse 12, he is the Holy One. Habakkuk is saying, there is no possibility of you being unrighteous. And in verse 13, it says, you are of pure eyes. You cannot see evil. He cannot even look at wrong. We see also in verse 12, he calls him God Almighty. That's what O Rock means. He's saying, you are the mighty God. And then he also reminds himself that God is faithful. 
where he says, you are my holy one. We shall not die. It's this reminder of this covenant personal relationship God has with his people. He's saying, you are my holy one and you are faithful to your people. You're not going to let us get wiped out because of your promises and who you are. That's how he starts. He doesn't just throw up his hands and walk away. He doesn't raise his fist at God, but he starts by remembering who God is. But then there's the tension. When you start moving through the passage, he starts to essentially say, okay, so then what gives? Again, in verse 13, then why, if all of this is true about you, why are you looking idly at these traitors, at these horrible human beings, and allowing them to do to your people what you're going to let them do? He uses an illustration of fishing in verses 14 to 16. He says, you've created us like a bunch of fish. In Babylon, the Chaldeans, they're there and they're just, in verse 15, he uses this language. He says, they're pulling us up. They're catching us. They're gathering us. And he talks about the tools that God has given them to allow them to do this. He said, you're using it with, you're letting them do it by a hook and a net and a dragnet. Verse 16, he goes on to say, God, (laughs) the very things that is giving them a life of luxury and joy in their lives uh, are, are these tools and they're sacrificing to them they don't worship you at all in verse 17 he's essentially saying god i don't get it then is he then just going to keep emptying his net killing the nations forever friends as we see this process of faith we see it as uh, us facing the news around us by remembering who God is as we process intention. God is always there, but the tension is also there. This week, uh, my daughter got her wisdom teeth out, and it was kind of the first medical procedure that she's undergone, and I was sitting there in the waiting room, and it reminded me uh, of, of a similar situation where I've had to be in this sort of tension where I'm remembering, but then living in tension. You know, when I was seven, I had some pretty major surgeries, and, and I remember my parents, who I knew loved me, I knew cared for me, tell me, hey, you're getting ready to go have surgery. The recovery is going to be hard. You're going to be out of school for weeks. You're going to have a healthy scar at the end of this. And there was some real tension. How can the ones I love put me through this, Right? Coaching me through blowing that little ball up, that little blow, and that thing's rough, especially when you have a cut on your abdomen, right? I know many of you have experienced that. But friends, in many ways, that's the place where Habakkuk is. He's like, God, you you are putting us through this pain, but I'm still, I have to trust you and process in faith by remembering who you are, that you love me and that you are good and that you are holy. I think Tommy said it well last week, where he talks about how God uses what he hates to accomplish what he loves, both in us and in the world around us, as he walks us towards redemption. And so here's kind of my fear this week for us as a church, is that we move really quickly to the tension and we're happy to sit there. We don't know our God well enough to remember him. We don't know who He really is. We don't labor in Scripture equally as we labor in the events of our day. 
And so maybe here, this would be a great exercise for us this week. Not to ignore the tension, but also not to ignore who God is. Go home and write a prayer this week where you scour Scripture and just write down, God, this is who your Word says you are. You are good. You are holy. You are loving. You are this. Write the passages down. And then right next to it say, but this. Here's the tension. Process in faith. Don't just move to fizzling and giving up. Don't just move to fighting. Move to faith. Here's the second thing we see in chapter 2, verse 1, and it's this idea of waiting in faith. I love this verse. Here's what it says. Habakkuk says, I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. He waits. He waits in faith. Do you see the waiting? Verse 1, I'm going to take my stand. God, I'm standing right here. It takes more faith to wait than it does to fight or fizzle, doesn't it? Two other things we see. We see rising and expecting. Here's the rising part. Do you see what he says? He says, I'm going to go to my watch post and I'm going to station myself on my tower. It's this idea of I'm going to get a higher vantage point so I can watch. One of my favorite leadership books is a book called Leadership on the Line by Heifetz and Linsky, and they have uh, a similar illustration that they use. Uh, they say, hey, when you're in uh, the throes of the drama or uh, the news, you know what's best to do is to get off the dance floor and up on the balcony so you can look and see what's happening. Friends, when we are in the weeds, when we're just doom-scrolling through our social media feeds, there is no way we are able to rise above that mess and see God. I don't know where Habakkuk goes. Does he go to a literal watchtower? Does he go to his prayer closet? Does he go for a walk with a friend? I don't know. But he gets out of the weeds and he says, I am straining my eyes to see you. And that's the third thing that we see is he's doing it expectantly. He's not just playing Fortnite. I'm just waiting. I'm just waiting. No, he is straining his eyes expectantly looking for him. I will look out to see what he will say to me. There is an activity in waiting. Friends, faith in waiting almost always precedes understanding. Faith in waiting, that, that comes in waiting, almost always precedes our understanding of what's going on. We see Jesus himself on his way to the cross in Matthew 26. He says, going on a little further, he fell on his face and prayed. I see this as Jesus in his watchtower. And he says, my father, right? He's remembering. He's saying, if possible, let this cup pass from me, right? So he's, he's also uh, living in the tension of not wanting to go to the cross. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Active waiting in faith demonstrates itself in our rising above what we see and expecting God to respond. So here's a couple of things to say. One is, is let me encourage us, especially in a pandemic, right? Whether you come to church on a Sunday morning or you watch online, wait in community with one another. We need to get over the mask. We need to get over the Zoom. We need to get around other people, virtual, a telephone, whatever it may be, and wait together. 
We are dying apart. I remember meeting with one of my friends and I had this conundrum that I was sitting there. I was like, I don't know what to do. Can you help me? (laughs) And he looked at me and he goes, no, no, I can't. But I can tell you what I tend to do when I face impossible situations. He says, I pray, I enlist prayer, and I wait on the Lord. I pray, I enlist prayer, and I wait on the Lord. And this brother prays with me weekly. Can we do that in community with one another? We desperately need it. Here's the other thing is, I know some people might be, Anthony, that's the problem with Christians, is all you do is wait and pray and faith, and and you're not active when we need to be active. I'm not going to go too far down this rabbit trail, only because it's not what the text is presenting us with today. But but let me just say this. Much of the acting and non-waiting we see today, God hates. Because it is the fighting. God hates violence. It's in Scripture, super clear. Whether that be a police officer with his neck on George Floyd, or with his knee on the neck of George Floyd, or the riots in Philadelphia that ensued in a response to that, or the riots that happened in the Capitol this week, many Christians of which are waving the flags and saying, yeah, that's me, I'm going to go riot and destroy, and that is not at all what God's Word ever calls us to. In fact, the activity... That scripture calls us to, and by the way, there are caveats, right? You've got wars and things like that that in Romans 13 we see God giving allowances for. But, but do you know what the primary response of Christians are, the activity that he calls us to as we read God's word is? It's not fighting. It's not flipping tables. That's his job. It's serving. It's serving. You see Jesus ministering to the crowd. Do you know what ministering means? means to serve. That's the posture in the heart of the Christian. Now again, I'm sure there are times that I'm overlooking where God calls us to more than that. I'm just, again, not going down that rabbit trail, but by and large, as a general principle, waiting, praying, being in God's Word, and serving one another is where He calls us. Serving our neighbors. Laying our lives down for them. So here's a question. How for Christians in the church, did processing in faith and waiting in faith get replaced by fear and anger when we read the news? Because that's really what it's been replaced by, in and out of the church. And there's a lot of different theories. read an article this week. It's our end times views. It's a prosperity gospel where our comfort is starting to disappear, and so we're just holding on to it tooth and nail. I think there's been some unholy matrimonies between the church and politics or between the church and social movements. I think at the end of the day, it's our own sinful broken hearts. But here's one thing I would offer to you uh, to consider as how these things have shifted in the lives of the church. It's our discipleship. It's our formation. We talked about this in the fall. We become what we follow. So let me throw this to you. If we are being discipled by CNN and NBC and NPR and Wolf Blitzer and Anderson Cooper and Trevor Noah and Keith Oberman or our favorite Twitter and Insta influencer, or if we are being discipled by Fox News and Newsmax and Rush Limbaugh and Glenn Beck and Parler and Mark Levin and Ben Shapiro and Tucker Carlson and Sean Hannity and Eric Metaxas, guess what's going to happen? 
If you listen to most of those news networks or people, what is the emotion that is constantly held before us? Outrage and anger. Trump is always wrong. The Dems are always wrong. This is always wrong and always horrible. It is outrageous. And they're the same coin, just two different sides. And if they're discipling us, then no kidding we're going to be angered and outraged constantly. A friend of mine in ministry wrote this this week as we were wrestling with this on an email thread. He said, all this angry news is the current liturgy, the worship that shapes us of the day. No longer daily prayer, but daily news of outrage. No longer meditating on Scripture and how Christ is Lord, but meditating on the possibility of lost comforts and status. No longer devising ways to serve our neighbors, but devising ways to cancel them before they get too much power. Many Christians have rewritten Psalm 1, meditating on political commentary day and night, like a tree planted by streams of sewage and unable to bear fruit in the right season, whose leaves are always withering. He goes on and he says, Our call is to model and teach those around us the habits of mind and heart that must lean against the wind that used to carry us. The word, prayer, and service once defined the life of a Christian. We must return to these again, to be Psalm 1 people once again, or risk being carried away in the wind like chaff. This will keep our eyes fixed on the Lamb of God, who alone is Lord. Where's your tree planted? Streams of living water? Streams of sewage? Here's the last point. This idea of receiving by faith. It's receiving by faith from Habakkuk 2. Pick back up with me. Verse 2. The Lord answered me. So here's God's answer to Habakkuk's questions. Write the vision. Make it plain on tablets. So he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to its end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. But the righteous shall live by his faith. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as shale. Like death, he has never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. So friends, this is really uh, the passage in which this whole section turns. He's saying, wait for it, right? God tells him to write it down. Did you, did you see that in verse 2? I love that because it's like God knew the church in 2021 needed to read this. Needed to read a day when bad news for a nation or God's people comes over and over again. And he says, write it down. It won't lie. It won't delay. Even though you think it's slow, God's economy often moves more slowly than you think it should. But it will not lie. It will not fail. Because it's embedded in God's character. Verse 4 is really the the linchpin. It's the hinge on all of this. And it's this uh, uh, contrast that's being made between Babylon and who God says is really right in his eyes. Did you see it? It said, behold, his soul. This is the Babylonians, right? These are the ones who trust their power. They trust their wealth. They trust their might. But it's saying his soul before God is puffed up. And it is not upright within him. 
They are not right. Even though, Habakkuk, you're interpreting my allowing this to be them uh, being right in my eyes, they're not. In fact, they're my enemy too. And then he just redefines what uh, a life of faith really is. The righteous shall live by faith. What God's saying here is faith is something that is received. Now, Anthony, where did you get that from this passage? Well, let me give you just a tip. As we read our scriptures, here's how we interpret what uh, is meant by certain passages. This passage right here is quoted three times in the New Testament, verse 4, and some of the most critical junctures uh, in the Christian theology. And so in order to understand exactly what God is talking about here, we need to go forward and see what's happening in those passages, which we'll do here in just a second. But here's the other direction we need to read in. As we read the Old Testament quoted uh, in the New Testament, we need to go back and understand the context in which it's given. And if we sit in the context here, we really get what some of these passages are talking about. God is essentially saying, (laughs) those who are self-reliant are actually unrighteous in my eyes. Those who are God-reliant are the ones who I love. Here's why I say this. First, we see the source of righteousness come out in Romans 1, 16 to 17. This is Paul. Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Gospel means good news of Jesus Christ. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. First to the Jew and then to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So here's what Paul's saying. He's saying... The only rightness we have before the God of the universe is that which he gives us. The power of God in the gospel. It is not self-generated. The Christian life is one that says, I have to have an outside force of the gospel act upon me to become my rightness before God and anybody else. Even in the midst of bad news, there's good news. Our rightness is received. It's not achieved. I think that's where a lot of the fighting is coming from right now. We recognize that we can't achieve our own rightness, but we fight tooth and nail to try to keep it. You ever stopped and think about, thought about the Sermon on the Mount? I've been slowly going through it here the last couple of weeks, and, and it's really the, the template of this is what the life of a, a follower of Christ looks like. And do you know what the first line is in the Beatitudes? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Do you know what it means to be poor? It means to be totally reliant upon someone else. For your sustenance, right? For the ability to live, to eat. And so it's saying the thing that most defines a person who is right before God is that he or she is totally reliant upon God and God alone for his or her rightness. Here's the next thing we see. So we see that the source of our righteousness is received in Jesus. Here's the second thing we see is there is a danger in self-generated rightness. Here's what Galatians 3 says. This is Paul again. All who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. So here's what he starts off saying. If you are relying on self-generated righteousness, keeping the law and rules and commands, whatever that be, whatever code of ethic you identify with, it's saying you're actually cursed. Because cursed is a person who doesn't keep the law perfectly. I know in my heart this week I did not keep the law perfectly. (laughs) 
He goes on and says, It is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the, but the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is anyone who is hanged on a tree. So here's what happens here. What Paul is essentially saying is, is hey, <laughs> we can't keep the law perfectly ourselves. If we can't, we're cursed. But Jesus Christ became a curse for us. He took our horrible record and he gave us his own. That's what 2 Corinthians 5 says. But our rightness is never self-generated. Friends, how can we tell if we're dabbling in the world of self-generated righteousness? Well, I don't know about you. Did anybody else here feel a little self-righteous this week? Don't put your hand up. This is not a hand up part. But I'll put my hand up. I certainly did. Over and over again, I was like, how dare they, uh, mm, uh, whoever they are, right? I'll hold those cards to myself. But I was self-righteous. Here's some categories. I love these categories from Surge of examples of self-generated righteousness. Just listen to see if maybe you experienced some of this this week. There's political righteousness, right? If you really love God, you'll vote for my candidate. There's racial righteousness, and I added this one. I care about people of color and demonstrate and act the way everyone else should. How about this one? Tolerance, righteousness. I'm open-minded and charitable towards those who don't agree with me. In fact, I'm a lot like Jesus in that way. All right. How about this one? Family righteousness. This is a big one for the suburbs. Ready? Because I do the right thing as a parent, I'm more godly than parents who can't control their children. Or whose children in a pandemic have that much screen time. Gasp, right? I could go on. There's legalistic righteousness, grace righteousness, schedule righteousness, flexibility righteousness. Our self-generated righteousnesses are endless. Here's what they have in common. God loves me because of blank. Something I can do. Here's the second part. I'm better than that person who's a lot worse at this. And what God would say is that self-generated righteousness? And those are filthy rags, which I reject. The only righteousness he accepts is that of his son. Remember the outset, verse 12, God is the most holy one, not us. Only he can give us the record of rightness. Here's the last one, and I'm just going to hit on this briefly. I, I want to dig into this one a little bit more, but here's the third time this is quoted in the New Testament. Hebrews 10. For you, and this is a church that's suffering under persecution of some form. We don't know what it is, but it says, you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. Now we're into Habakkuk again. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and persevere their souls, or preserve their souls. Here's what this is saying. In order for us to persevere in bad news, we must live a life that is 100% reliant upon another. We don't have it in the tank. We will run out of gas. But he is faithful to preserve us as we rely on him, not by our pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps, but by living on our knees and begging him for mercy. Friends, my job as a pastor is not to call us to preserve our way of life, to preserve our rights as a church. 
I'm of the growing opinion that it's for me to prepare us to suffer. Read the Bible. It's all about God's people being prepared or encouraged while being persecuted. How can we show this to the watching world? You know what the common thread through all of this is? Is humility. It takes a lot of humility to rely on something other than ourselves. How can we show that to the world? On the news? On social media? Let me conclude with this. The church must be careful as we face the news of our day. Habakkuk encourages not fizzle, not fight, but to learn to interpret the events of the day by faith. To trust Him that what could be to our eyes the worst possible thing we could imagine, it may actually be the very thing God is using to convict, to restore, and to force His people to completely rely upon Him and Him alone. Let me close this in prayer. Well, Father, I don't know what this week is going to be. I don't know what my brothers and sisters and friends before me watching from wherever they're watching from are going to walk out of here and face. Father, you do. And I pray that you will give us the faith to remember you and who you are in the tension, to wait in faith, Lord, to not rely upon ourselves at all, but on you and your rightness alone. Father, I pray for those who don't know you. God, will you open their hearts to your rightness that you freely offer that will enable us to be humble yet joyful that even in the midst of bad news, there is good news offered in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Lord, we love you. Thanks for this time. Be with us as we move to communion. We pray these things in your name. Amen.